one. And we're going to dive into that and explain it and try to get a sense of these two books. Uh, before I read and pray, uh, just want to tell you a couple things. One, uh, we had a great trip. So thank you for letting us go and be away for a few weeks. We just had a, a wonderful time being away on vacation. We enjoyed being in England and Scotland. It was it was a trip of a lifetime for, uh, for me and Jenny. So thank you for that. We're back. We're glad to be back. It doesn't matter how good vacation is, there's nothing like sleeping in your own bed. Right? Plus over there, they don't have air conditioning. So there's that. Um, well, let's look at uh, this, this uh, chapter this morning, and let's just remember the big picture of what we're doing this year together. Remember these numbers, three, four, and five. Three, four, and five. I get my hands right? Three, four, there we go, all right. So if you're just visiting with us and you wanna know what our church is about, you can associate that with three. Three loves, love God, love people, love place. We find that in the book of Genesis and we find that that's the way things will be in the world to come. So three loves. Four, that communicates and corresponds to what we think about the Bible. We think that the Bible is a story. We don't... Um, we don't see the Bible ultimately as just giving advice, although most of us have probably grown up, best case scenario, thinking that the Bible is a two-part story, and that the Bible actually is just advice on how to live. But the reality is, the Bible is a story, is fundamentally a story that has four parts. Do you remember these parts with me? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. So in order to understand the Bible, You've got to understand those four parts of the story. You truncate any of them, diminish any of them, and to that extent, our understanding of the scriptures will be deficient. So the Bible's four parts, and this year we're looking at this four-part story together. We'll get more on that in a moment. Five, that corresponds to if the four parts is kind of the structure and skeleton, five are five little phrases that are like the muscles and the meat that put on that four-part scaffolding, that skeleton. So they're hopefully uh, five expressions of what historically Christians believed, and hopefully they're in some kind of practical language, so they mean something in your life. But they're meant to be little doctrinal summaries of what the Bible communicates and what we believe as followers of Jesus. So here are our five statements, and hopefully you're getting these down because we've been going over them for, uh, it's almost August, isn't it? Man, yeah, we've been going over those for basically seven months now. So here are the five statements. Number one, God has always had a people. He's always been building his church from Genesis 1 all the way to the end. He's always had a people. Number two, I know you like this one. Evil is real, but never gets the last word. In the story of God, in God's story, it never gets the last word, but it's real. Three, grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Start to finish in the story. It's all about the grace of God. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something through his life and death and resurrection. He actually accomplished something. He didn't die to make you savable. He didn't die to make it possible. He died as a literal savior to save his people from their sins. We believe in a literal savior. And five, remember this one? Everything is moving toward Christ. 
Everything in the scriptures, everything in your life, everything in my life, everything in current events, everything in the future, everything is moving toward Jesus. So if you understand those five things and those four parts of the story and those three loves, you'll have a sense of what we're about and what we're studying together this year. So let's look at Ezra chapter one. Listen to this. This is the word of God. You can bank your entire life on it. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, <clears throat> thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is to have a copy of your word. We can often forget that. We thank you for the pr privilege that it is to meet and to hear from you. So we would ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word. For in understanding your word, we understand everything who you are, who we really are, what's going on, what can happen, what you've done, what that means. You lay it out for us. So, Holy Spirit, keep us from coming just thinking that we're gonna get some fresh tips and new techniques on how to live. Decrease that desire in us for quick fixes, mishandling your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a deeper desire to come into your place, to worship God, to change, to be transformed because of truth, that we might, by your power, live it out this week. All this, Jesus, because none of it's possible without what you've done and who you are. So we offer our prayer with confidence and hope because we're praying in your name. Amen. This morning, as we look at the book of Ezra, I've got one point that I want to show you from the text. And here's the point. Highs, lows, and constant need of the gospel. So if you wonder, what in the world is this guy talking about? When you go out these doors, that's what I hope you remember. Highs, lows, and constant need of the gospel. So in order for me to show that to you this morning... We're going to do two things in our journey. The first is get the story down so we understand and make sure we understand how we, can be all, how we need to be on the same page in thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah. So we're going to recap the story, and then we're going to jump into our takeaways, and we have three of those this morning. So highs, lows, and constant need of the gospel. And we're going to start figuring that out, thinking about this story. So when you look back in verse 1 of the text, the author kind of assumes that we know our history. Did you notice that? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled on and on. It assumes that we understand history. So let's make sure that we understand our history. Matter of fact, let's go all the way back 
to the beginning, to get to this point, and we'll come forward to get to this point of understanding where we are in world history. So, back in the beginning, God created male and female. He created them in his image that they would live for the life of the world. But not long after God created and not long after they named the animals and on and on, poison was injected to the entirety of everything. There was a rebellion. Our forefathers rebelled against God and it injected poison into everything. Our relationship to God, our relationship to each other, our relationship to the world. It all went horribly wrong. But God has always had a people and he is always concerned about building his church. And so in the midst of this rebellion, God determined that he was going to preserve someone like Noah. And then after that, God came to someone who was way past his prime, I mean way past his prime, in his 90s, and said, you're going to have a son. And from that son is going to be a nation of 12 tribes, and, and they're going to be a people. And from them, actually, God says he's going to bless the whole world through that family. Then, lo and behold, this guy named Abraham ended up having a son, developed into the 12 tribes, a nation. They <clears throat> ended up in Egypt. And then God brought his people out of Egypt and then led them into the land that he promised them. And in the land, God gave them kings and built a kingdom. And after a number of kings, what ended up happening is they started fighting and forgetting about what God has said and not thinking about his covenant with them. And so they started fighting amongst themselves and God would send them warnings and encouragements and calls to come back to him. And at the end of the day, the kingdom ended up dividing. The kingdom was split in north and to the south. And God said, not only is there going to be this division, but you're actually going to go into exile because you need to learn more. <clears throat> so Assyria came and took the northern kingdom into captivity around 722 BC. And then not long after that, a little while, Babylon came and took the southern kingdom into captivity. And you might remember Babylon in particular because there was this guy named Daniel. Remember some stories about Daniel? Well, it wasn't long until Babylon started to crumble. And guess who came and overtook Babylon? Persia. Where does Cyrus come from? He's the king of Persia. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah, these books we're looking at this morning, are a shift in the Old Testament. Prior to Ezra and Nehemiah, all of the prophets that we've been looking at for so long, all of them were talking about the coming exile or describing what life living in exile was like. But Ezra and Nehemiah remind us that the exile was never going to be permanent. This is the shift when God's people come out of exile and go back to their land and they're supposed to restart that's why all the other prophets are talking about the coming exile and living in exile, but there are three prophets that are connected with Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. You don't have to remember that. I'm just mentioning them to you because there are only three of them that are written post-exilic, and we're going to look at those three next week because they tuck in to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. But this morning, we get to remember that 
This guy named Cyrus was raised up by God in order to do this thing for his people because God has a plan. And he's been unfolding that plan through all of history. And so when you read verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, of Ezra 1, and you wonder who in the world is this guy Cyrus, Persia, where does that come from? Now you know. He was there after the Babylonian Empire collapsed. And this is what happens. If you look at verse 2 through 4, he makes this decree. Look at what he says. He makes this decree. He not only just says it, he puts it in writing, which means it's really serious. And he says to God's people who are living in exile, you can go home. Can you imagine that? Imagine if you had been in exile for 70 years, and yeah, you heard the prophets talk about it wouldn't be forever, but 70 years would feel like it. And now Cyrus makes this decree, and he says, go up. The text literally says, go up to Jerusalem. You can go home. And not only does he say you can go home to rebuild the temple, to rebuild a place and the house of God, and then not only redo that, but rebuild your community, he encourages everyone in his kingdom to give to it. Did you notice that? Those of you that are here in the Persian Empire, uh, would you please notice that these people are going out from us? And would you offer them, would you give them free will offerings? Would you give them supplies? Would you give them animals so that when they go back, they can restart their society? Would you be kind to them? Would you give them what they need to rebuild because they've been in exile and have nothing? Now, that is amazing, isn't it? When he makes this decree, it was made in the year 539 B.C. It's documented. It's a real thing. happened in real history. Telling God's people to go back, this was unbelievable. Telling people could go back, it made me think of uh, every day when I was in school and the teacher said, okay, it's time for recess. Like, I had that kind of joy. Really? I get to go outside? I can't, I'm tired of doing all this stuff. Cyrus is like, you can go home. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a museum in London that has a little uh, artifact called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it's a little uh, artifact of this very thing that you're reading about right here. Where he tells God's people they can go back. Well, that's the story that we read about in the first four verses of this book. Let's get into and think about some of the takeaways. What in the world does this mean for me? I mean, maybe you're struggling to get excited about people uh, going back to their homeland, or maybe you're struggling to get excited about the fact that God is real, and he really cares about his people, and he promised them that they wouldn't be in exile forever, and then he made sure that they wouldn't be there forever. Maybe you're thinking, I still don't know what in the world that means for me. Well, let's think about that. Here's the first thing that we need to see in the text and need to understand about this story. First takeaway is this. God is at work. He's at work. He's always at work. Did you notice in uh, verse 1 that it says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, 539 B.C., that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled? Did you notice that? Jeremiah prophesied about 90 years before this happened. And in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29, God says that there's going to be a king named Cyrus and he's going to do this very thing. 90 years before it happened. God said this is going to happen. 
Matter of fact, if you want to read other prophets like Isaiah, Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 45, that this guy Cyrus would be raised up by God. Here's what you might not recognize just from the surface of the text, but it's true and it's there. Cyrus was not someone who loved the God of the Bible. The reason why this is mentioned about the prophet Jeremiah is because God wants us to understand that it doesn't matter whatever decisions kings are going to make, it doesn't matter whatever kingdoms are going to do, God is in control. And he is going to turn things and work things for the good of his people and for his own glory. On that Cyrus cylinder, not only does the inscription read about the declaration of God's people going back to their land, but it also in the Cyrus cylinder says, Cyrus says, and as you return to your land, would you please pray to your God for me that I might have a long life? And then he adds this weird statement like this, and also I worship the sun. Cyrus was not someone who loved the God of the Bible. God was using his decision to bring about his purposes. And if you were to read Ezra and Nehemiah, what you would find is over 13 times a phrase something like this, and the Lord stirred up, and the Lord did this, and the Lord's hand was moving here such that it is unmistakable that no matter what is happening, God is at work and he is doing something for his own glory and the good of his people. That means, friends, I don't know what you're going through right now, but there's a whole lot more happening in your life than just what you're experiencing. There's a whole lot more going on in your life than what you imagine and what you could possibly understand. God is doing above and beyond what you could even fathom in every aspect, in every detail, in everything going on in your life and in my life. God is at work and he's doing things that are so far beyond us. He's doing things that we might learn to look to him. In other words, in our lives, we need to try, by his grace, to live into this reality that he is at work. So oftentimes, we try to do things to get his attention. And the reality is, is that we need to live as if he's doing more than what we can see and what we understand and what we know. That means to live into the reality that God is at work and that he's working out his plan. If we live into that, what it means is that the idea that God is at work can start to chip away at that pride that we have that remains inside of us. The fact that God is at work can start chipping away at um, our... Uh, Anxiousness, anxiousness about the future? The fact that God is at work can start to chip away at our fear of suffering or hardship? The fact that God is doing something beyond what we can ever imagine means that that truth starts to chip away at things that need to change in our lives. 
It means the reality that God is at work in believing that and trusting that and living as if that's true means that it doesn't just chip away at our pride and it doesn't just chip away at our anxiety. It means that it starts to loosen our grip on our desire to control. If you thought that God is really in control, that he has a plan, that he's accomplishing his purposes, then my hunch is that our grip on control and wanting what we want and our plans and our hopes, we'll just loosen our grip on that a little bit. What do you think? You think it's possible that could happen? God desires a people who look to him and who entrust all of their lives to him and who are consciously living every day, not trying to serve self and trusting his word and his faithfulness and who he is. So the first thing to take away, God is at work. Friends, he's at work in your life. He's doing things in your life. Don't forget that. Your life is not about you. Your life and my life are about God and what he's doing. Even when we can't say specifically everything that he's doing, we're learning to live in dependence upon him. Second, God critiques our wish list. Now, stay with me here because we gotta get a little more of the story to understand this. You know, you have this incredible high of Cyrus's decree to go back. And what God's doing throughout this story is he's critiquing our wish list. Here's what I mean. Um, Anybody have a list that they think, if if I just got this in my life, then I would have the life that I deserve? or I would have the life that I really want, or if I just got these things, my wish list, if, if, they, if these just came true, then I would really be living. I would have the life that I want. Do you wanna ramp this up a little bit? Anybody have plans that they have made for their lives? And you think if I just, if, if, if those plans come to fruition, if those plans happen, then, then I'll have the life that I really want. Then that, well, if I just, if I just, if these plans happen in my life, then my life would be amazing. You ever think that way? If you want to go another step and go even deeper, think about what laws you're living by. You know, the laws that you create for your relationship, for your job, whatever it is, the laws that you have. And don't you think at some level, if, if, if everyone would just follow these laws, then, then we would have an amazing, my life would be amazing. And, and, and I would make everybody's, everybody's life would be better if we just followed these laws. If you don't know what those laws are, just look at your relationships. And if people break those laws, they may not even know that those laws exist. But when they break your laws, just look at how upset you get because you're living by those laws and you're holding everyone accountable to those laws that they may not even know you have created. So if you're on the bus, if, you, if you're following me so far, 
Let me give you a situation, a scenario from Ezra and Nehemiah that I think we all could agree would be absolutely amazing. You ready? Here's the situation. Um, a pagan king tells God's people to go back home and to rebuild their place of worship and to build their community and he funds it and he encourages the people in his empire to give to it supplies, money, everything else. That's the scenario in Ezra and Nehemiah that this king that doesn't love God orders this to happen. Doesn't that sound like a pretty appealing scenario? Doesn't that sound pretty amazing that this king who doesn't love God orders God's people to go and worship and set up their life again? Doesn't that sound amazing? I mean, you talk about a high, that is an incredible high. And I wonder if God's people weren't arguing. We should not take money from this king. If we do that, then he's going to go and he was going to want this and this. And there'll be others who would say, of course we should take all this. He should be giving us more. And if you think I'm making political statements, you're not hearing me. The point is not about politics. It's not about agenda. The point is none of those things that the king did could ever save anyone. Ever. Whether they took the money or not, took the supplies or not, it doesn't matter. You see, God is coming after our little wish list in which we think, well, here, here's our scenario. We finally got a king, and this is what he tells us. He doesn't even love our God. And now we're going back, and we get to rebuild everything? Let me tell you, there were some incredible highs, not just Cyrus making this decree. But if you go back and read, guess what? They end up rebuilding the temple. It was an amazing time. God's people were rejoicing. Not only that, but the word of God was read again. It was preached again. And it hadn't for a long time. The sacrifices started again, which meant that God's people were getting back into the rhythm of repenting and believing. They had the law of God and they had the sacrificial system, so they knew what they were supposed to do. And when they didn't follow that, they got to confess and acknowledge that something had to die in their place. They were getting back into the rhythm of repenting and believing. And not only did they rebuild the temple, under Nehemiah, they rebuilt the wall. And they had some level of safety. We're talking some unbelievable highs. God's people were being restored. Worship was being restored. The word of God was central again. But guess what? Those are the highs. And there were some unbelievable lows. Let me tell you, God's people just whiffed on this opportunity. Yes, they rebuilt the temple. Yes, they rebuilt the wall. Yes, they reinstituted the sacrifices. Yes, they were hearing the word of God. But let me tell you, it wasn't something that was permanent. They got really excited for a little while and then, uh, yeah, worshiping God is just, you know, it was great, but it didn't become the staple of their week. It wasn't the rhythm of their life. It was exciting for a little while and then it just fell back into something of a formality that they had to do every now and then. They built this wall for protection, but they were fundamentally rebuilding the wall. You know why? To keep people out. God's people were not meant to live keeping people out. God's people were created to live for the life of the world. God's people go back 
And they create this wall primarily so they can keep others away, which means they weren't caring about other people. They weren't serving. They weren't sacrificing. Matter of fact, God's people became very selfish and started living for themselves again. We'll learn more about that next week when we go through those three prophets I mentioned earlier, and we'll learn about how they didn't give to the Lord's work, how they were focused on their own homes, that they were just simply living a life trying to get everything they could and live for themselves and build their own reputations and, and want other people to care about them, not God. God's people had unbelievable highs during this time and astonishing lows in which they just whiffed. And hear me again, it's not that if God's people had taken supreme advantage of this opportunity that everything would have been better. That's not the point. The point is that it didn't matter what happened, who was king, what law, what, what statement was made about the return. It doesn't matter if you don't have the gospel. It doesn't matter. You see, God is critiquing our wish list. He's showing us, you know, that whole idea of if I just had these things and it worked this way, then, then I would get the life that I want, that I would get the life I deserve. I, I would actually start to truly live. Friends, God is saying that's a counterfeit. That's nothing more than just this legalistic way to live where you think, oh, well, if God says this and I do it, then I, uh, these are the results that I get. God is showing in this story that that way of living is a counterfeit, that you can have amazing circumstances and amazing opportunities, and we just whiff. We just miss it because what we really need is not any of those things as much as we need the gospel. And that's what God is showing his people. He's saying, I did all of these things. You've forgotten me. Yeah, you got really excited for a little while and then not so much anymore. Here's the third takeaway. God is at work. God is critiquing our wish list which just exposes our need for the real thing, the gospel. Here's the third thing. What we learn here is this. This story just creates in us more longing. Creates in us more and more longing. You know, if you go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, I think that you would read those two books and be like, what? Like there are these unbelievable highs and then this is the way that Ezra and Nehemiah end? Like at the end of Ezra, the book of Ezra, at the end of Ezra, this is what Ezra does. Remember, they've uh, rebuilt the temple, they've started sacrificing again, all these amazing things, but, but, but yet the book ends with Ezra getting all the people together and then he tells them that they've married a bunch of people they shouldn't have, and so he grants them all divorce in mass. That's how the book ends. What? What, what are they supposed to do? What, what's happening with these houses that got ripped off? What, what is going on? 
You're telling me that we rebuilt the temple and we uh, have sacrifices and we confessed our sins before God and we're hearing God's word and this is what happens? In mass, everybody, you're divorced. See ya. That's what it feels like when you read the end of Ezra. And, and Nehemiah, he, was, he had amazing leadership gifts. On, there are plenty of books written about Nehemiah and how great of a leader he was. If you want to read those, go for it. Let me tell you where Nehemiah ends. Nehemiah ends chasing people because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. He actually ends up, if you read the end of Nehemiah, he punches some people in the face. Uh, he puffs himself up and intimidates people to get them to run away. And they're even, in, in Nehemiah, this is in the word of God, Nehemiah even tracks some people down and rips out their hair with his hands. How about that for leadership? You like that? You read the, these stories and you think that, that, that there has to be a better ending than this. this the, the amazing things happened under Ezra and amazing things happened under Nehemiah. And by the end of the story, people are getting punched in the face and their hair's getting pulled out. And then Nehemiah says at the very end, multiple times in the last chapter, oh Lord, remember me for good. All this leadership stuff went straight to his head. And he started thinking to himself, well, look how great. I mean, these people are pathetic, God. But remember me for good. Remember everything that I've done. How amazing I am. That's how Nehemiah ends. That has to create a sense of longing inside of us in which we read these stories and think, wow, this is unbelievable. Amazing highs and incredible lows. So what do we do now? In other words, it creates in us a sense of longing. I bet, I bet this story can relate to all of us because of this. Isn't this how we experience life? Highs and lows? Isn't that how you've experienced life so far? I, I bet sometimes the highs and lows have felt like whiplash. Like you've had an amazing experience and then immediately down the dumps. That ever happened? Or, or maybe with some kind of perspective, you've looked back over your life and looked back over the decades and you've realized, wow, we've had some amazing things in our lives. And, and, and we've had some really hard things too. See, Ezra and Nehemiah, it reflects our own life. We know what it's like to experience highs and lows. As a matter of fact, the the highs and lows in Ezra and Nehemiah are just echoes of the greatest high and low that has ever happened. And that was through the coming of Jesus. You know, the greatest high ever was Jesus being with the Father and the Spirit in perfect communion with God. And guess what? That was the highest of highs. That's where we're headed because of what Jesus has done one day to be in unfiltered fellowship with the triune God. But there was a time when Jesus was with the Father and with the Spirit, but he didn't cling tightly to that, did he? He left that communion with his Father to come here to earth. And that was an unbelievable low in which God himself would take on human form and become a man. And in becoming a man, the lows got lower, in which he had to learn how to walk and talk like we did. 
And, and he had to face temptation like we do. And he had to endure trials like we do. And he had to hear things like, there's an easier way, there's a, there's a bloodless path to glory if you want it, Jesus. And then he actually had to die. You talk about lows. He gave himself to death. And in giving himself to death on a cross, God says that Jesus became sin. Not that Jesus sinned, but he became sin for people like you and me. Which means on the cross, he was treated as if he was a sinner. It means that he became and was treated like a sexual failure, a thief, a robber, someone who didn't care about anyone else, just wanted to serve themselves. He became the one who rebelled against God. He was treated that way in our place. He didn't do it because we're so great. He did it because we're not great. You talk about unbelievable humility. And then after he died, he was, he was put in the ground. He was put in a tomb. But then, what happened after that? Oh, it's time for some more highs. But then he got up, and then he walked out of the tomb. And then he walked out in new life. And then he came to his disciples, and he communicated to them that there's peace between God and them because of what he had done. And then he ascended, and now he's at the right hand of the Father. Unbelievable highs and lows. Beloved, that's the message of the gospel, that Jesus has done this for you and for me so that our life might be reordered and our desires might be reordered and we might worship God not as a formality, just something we do every now and then, but it's the very essence of what we want is to worship God and be known by God and to serve God. Jesus lived and died and rose again so that the word of God would absolutely transform and be part of the very fabric of our being. So what he says is more important to us than anything else. And what Jesus did transforms us into a reality that we want to serve other people, not create walls and build barriers to keep people out, but to give our lives away in service to him and in growing his kingdom. You see, all that Jesus has done is what actually makes our lives brand new. And friends, that's what brings us to the table. It's here that we get to remember that Jesus lived for us and died for us. That we might wait for him and look forward to his return. You remember the night in which he was betrayed? He was with his disciples he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.